welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivik Karnak. So this week we're all on holiday. Christiana's home in Costa Rica and I'm down in a Cornish fishing village in the west of England with my family and Paul is doing whatever Paul does when he goes on holiday. So my colleagues are not with me today, but we're still bringing you the podcast. But rather than the usual conversation between the three of us, we're just going to go straight into the interview. And we have a very interesting conversation for you this week. Today we speak to John Ashford, once a country and western disc jockey, and then in 1992 turned entrepreneur. In that year, he founded the Hawthorne Group, one of the most well-recognized public affairs, communications, and lobby firms inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. I met John way back in 1994. He had been a classmate of my brother Jose Maria at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard. And when Jose Maria decided to run for president of Costa Rica, he asked John to help on the campaign, given the fact that we already knew that he was a brilliant political strategist. So I had the pleasure of working with John on my brother's political campaign. Now, political campaigns are part of what John does or used to do. He's actually more of a communications strategist and lobbyist for energy companies. And given the fact that he founded his company way back in the 1990s, it should come as no surprise that those energy companies in the United States were fossil fuel companies. It's a good thing that John has now turned the page, but today we take him back to the days in which he was working as one of the most effective communicators for the fossil fuel companies. And in fact, he is credited widely with having conceived the term clean coal. And he is definitely the person responsible for having run the clean coal campaign in the United States, an exceedingly effective campaign for the fossil fuel companies. Now, given the fact that that campaign was so successful, it's very good to know that John today is now working with energy companies in the United States, communicating, lobbying for renewable energy. But now we will put John under pressure and take him back to his clean coal days. Have a listen. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. And so this podcast we've been running for a few months is called Outrage and Optimism. And, you know, we think we're at this really interesting inflection point in the global response to the climate crisis and to the extinction crisis and all the other things that are going on. But we think both of those principles of a healthy dose of outrage on the streets and elsewhere and optimism of innovation and cr creativity in responding to this, those, those sort of twin responses are going to be necessary to kind of move Move us through where we are at the moment. And, you know, as, as you know well, one of the major issues that will determine whether or not we're going to get on top of this issue is the future of coal. And so we are really interested right now, obviously Donald Trump is doubling down on clean coal and beautiful clean coal, etc, etc. And we wanted to talk to you 
Number one, about the history of that idea, kind of where it came from and how it caught on. And then just more broadly with your experience as a, as a D, DC lobbyist and, and working advocacy for so many different sources, kind of your experience of how you try to kind of like bring large groups of people with you and try and change the world as a result. So that's kind of the context of what we want to talk about. Got it. Okay, can I can I just step back for a second from from that, Tom? Because um, just just to give a context for um, for all of us to know, not everyone is um, aware of what the industry is uh, that John is in. And so, John, please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, Hawthorne Group is a company that you founded in 1992. It is uh, an international public affairs company, um, and uh, you do basically basically three things. You do advocacy, known in other corners as lobbying. You do strategic communications and you do crisis management. And I believe that most of your clients are either in the private sector, because corporations need all of this kind of support, or in the public sector, in particular, um, uh, candidates for political um, elections, for political positions that want your support for strategic planning of their campaigns. Is that correct? Uh, Only correction to that would be, we do not get involved in candidate elections anymore. Okay. After a bitter experience in Costa Rica. (laughs) uh, Would that have been with my brother's election by any chance? Yes. No, uh, (laughs) We got, we've gotten out of the candidate business except when a corporate client wants to help a candidate and the laws permit it, mm. um, which is a very infrequent event for us. We do do some work in the not-for-profit sector uh, representing universities, hospitals, but, but again, it's more their corporate, if I can use that term, interests. It's crisis management. It's government regulation. It's all the things they'd be dealing with as a for-profit business. Okay. So it's it's the corporate sector. We are focused heavily at the state level. I mean, we do both national uh, U.S. and non-U.S. work, but much of our work happens at state capitals and in local communities. Well, one example where that was not true, um, uh, John, and that I think is a very interesting example of why you are one of the best known and most effective public affairs companies in the United States was the 2008 electoral campaign, national electoral campaign in the United States, McCain versus Obama, where you did not support either candidate, but you did bring the whole coal issue to to the attention of the American uh, public and the American electorate. And by your own self, um, self admission, you were so effective in that, that you raised support uh, for clean coal from 46 to 72% in um, by, by the survey that you did. So I just think that is a fascinating example of A, corporate interest, B, the, the, um, the relationship between corporate interest and a political campaign, 
and the fact that you were able to bring that into the campaigns of both candidates, of both political parties. So you did not make it a partisan issue. You actually made it an American public um, issue, which is a fascinating approach. A am I wrong in remembering that you came up with the term clean coal? You came up with that concept and then the Hawthorne Group ran this amazing campaign. Am I wrong in my memory? No, we were, I, I won't claim or give credit to any one individual for coming up with the concept or the title or the, the slogan, Clean Coal. But as you know, at that time, two things were true. One, the coal industry was isolated. It had no supporters. And second, there was only sort of a general public awareness that coal was dirty and bad. There was little consumer awareness of the cost consequences of making what was not only the desperately needed but inevitable transformation away from coal, particularly as a source of uh, electrical power. So the question, the, the, the challenge for the coal industry was in its interest, how did it get its message out that there were things that could be done to lessen the negative impacts of coal, scrub it, uh, capture it, uh, burn cleaner versions of it. And secondly, that consumers understood the cost consequences of making that shift. But like all of us, consumers just don't want to pay for it. And if you said, would you support uh, a shift in how your electricity is made, however we worded the question properly, to reduce its impact on global warming? Absolutely. If it costs you $5 a month, well, it dropped. If it costs you $10 a month, well, it dropped like a rock. And then, of course, we also, as I said, measured awareness of ways of, of, of capturing uh, the, the pollutants or burning a cleaner version of coal. And, uh, you know, to most people, coal's coal. And uh, that came as, uh, as new information. So there was, there, was, there was opportunity for the coal industry to advance its, its interests. And, and why do you think, John, that it was possible at that time? And, I, you know, I realize that uh, compared to where we are now in our understanding of, of climate change, it, it would probably be a very different result. But why do you think it was possible to sell this concept to both candidates? I mean, we have, you know, we have, we have seen both McCain and Obama uh, records of both of them refer to clean coal in that election, uh, in that campaign in 2008. Why do you think that was possible? Well, I think uh, uh, with both profound respect for uh, former President Obama and the late Senator McCain, uh, who I still continue to view as a genuine American hero, President Trump's view notwithstanding, they are politicians, they were candidates, and candidates look for easy, appealing answers. Mm -hmm. They both, I say this not having talked to either one of them personally about this, but having, but, but knowing President Obama and having, in all uh, transparency, having worked for him at one time, uh, and in having been honored to know Senator McCain, they both wanted to take a position in which they were supporting doing something about global warming, climate change, that addressed the evils, the problems with coal, 
but yet not so extreme as to panic the voters that it was some wild-eyed scheme they couldn't afford and would have disastrous consequences for them. So the phrase clean coal sounded like something that should appeal to everyone. Mm. I mean, who would want dirtier coal? (laughs) Uh, You know, it offered some incremental improvement or relief without bankrupting the system in theory. And, you know, as it turned out, it was only a very short-term bridge, you know, to what is now uh, an electric utility industry in which uh, renewables produce more electricity than coal for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. So to just look at unpack the dynamics of that a little bit, though, John, I mean, you were working for the American Coalition of Clean Coal Electricity, so a group of utilities and miners, I assume. Um, And what you were able to do using your communications experience and skills was to normalize the idea that coal has a role as a solution to climate change and thereby increase kind of American support for it, increase its political potency across the political spectrum. And at the same time, what was done was the desperately needed response to climate change was slowed by a significant amount of time. And we're still kind of feeling the drag of that. So, you know, looking back at that 10 years later, it sort of feels like that campaign was kind of a construction for the benefit of that group of entities that was a client. But it feels like the net effect has been pretty detrimental for the world in general. Would you say that's fair? I I don't know how to measure fairness, but I'd say it's accurate. Uh, I I hope all our campaigns are designed to advance our clients' interests. Uh, But whether or not it would have been better to have been able for the issue to be addressed without the concept of clean coal or the pushback of the coal industry, I'm not sure we would be any farther along, I mean, half the coal plants in America have shut. As I said, a, uh, uh, renewables have now passed coal as a source of electricity. I don't know that that transformation could have been any quicker, at least in terms of both affordability and reliability. Could have, I mean, because you certainly had very clear voices on the other side. I mean, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, uh, Harry Reid of Nevada, there is no such thing as clean coal. Right. Harry grew up in a, a mining town in Nevada, Searchlight, a huge champion of the uh, metals mining industry in Nevada, but a vicious foe of, uh, of coal. So those voices were out there. And I think uh, not only to the mine owners, but to the mine workers, to the communities dependent on them, to the communities in, in you know, a hundred small towns in America that depended on their coal-fired electric generating plant to produce jobs and property taxes and support the school system and the sheriff and the ambulance department. I've watched what what has happened as those coal plants have necessarily and to the ultimate greater good been closed. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I view it as a not unmerited voice in the debate. It may have slowed a process that either could have moved faster to address a desperate problem or could have moved too fast and then gotten the kind of overreaction that you're now getting from uh, 
the Trump administration's rollback of 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 all the uh, the rules and uh, regulations. Hmm. You know, John, I think it's very interesting that you bring up the topic of uh, jobs because on, on the one hand, because coal is no longer competitive, in fact, against natural gas, let alone renewables, and because coal has been so automized, there is a very natural, let's say, um, technology attrition of jobs in the coal industry that has nothing to do with climate change. It's just the way the industry is advancing. Those people who are on the climate change side and who are um, fighting to accelerate would say, would agree with the point that there is no such thing as clean coal and are very much concerned about what we call just transition. So you can see that there is a tension there, a very important tension, and one that needs our attention. And I'm I'm wondering from a public affairs perspective, has anyone ever reached out to you to help in the communications and, and, and to further the political willingness of both corporates and government to pay more attention to the loss of jobs and, and, and just transition for those people and those families and those communities? Not, not at an industry level. A number of our clients who have been involved in, in shutting down coal plants have uh, asked for help in terms of economic development, uh, worker retraining, a number of things. But what we haven't seen is industries come together for almost a, to go back to the Truman Era Marshall Plan uh, for Europe, a plan that will move us off coal and oil and gas ultimately, and perhaps some would argue nuclear given the waste issues, and in doing so, lessen the horrible burden that falls on particular groups of workers, communities, investors, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it was always astonishing to me that uh, the U.S. government at the same time was paying bills for cancer treatment through Medicare and for crop support for tobacco farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh that seemed highly inconsistent, but I don't happen to have a tobacco allotment. I mean, your, your, your use of the word tension was a, a particularly good one. Uh, I think the coal fight has been won. But the question is, if we're going to accelerate those closings and do some of the things the Green New, New Deal folks would, would propose, how do we socialize the cost? What safety net do we put under communities and workers and, and companies and, and, and so forth? What about the efforts of the oil and gas industry to throttle wind and solar development throughout the Midwest, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, where oil and gas is but, I mean, enormously John, powerful? These are all these are all really good questions, and I think you know they all certainly need to be addressed and thought about. But I think just to go back, you know, to what you said a minute ago that the fight against coal has been won. Um, that that may be emerging from an economic perspective, but we still have a president of the United States who is standing up at the State of the Union and saying, we have ended the war on coal, which is crazy when you consider there is less than sort of 50,000 jobs in coal mining left in the US. The degree of political potency 
policy around that is still very strong. And in part, that comes from what was really an obfuscation of reality 10 years ago, claiming that such a thing existed as clean coal, that, hey, there was this solution to climate change that also incorporated coal. So for, for us to have a shared basis upon which we can address these social issues, we need to be able to look at the facts and have collective public understanding of the facts of what are genuine solutions and what aren't. And the question I'm leading up to is, and, and it may be that you're still engaged in this work or it may be you're not, but certainly many are trying to slow this transition down, trying to create uncertainty and confusion, maybe around the science, but certainly around the solutions. So I would be really interested in knowing from you how how do we not lose any more time on this? Because we can't afford another 10 years of public confusion of can coal help, can it not help, etc. We need to get on and address the real issues of transition and social justice in the transition that you highlighted without continually having these discussions around what is and what isn't a solution. So how do we win the fight against those very well-funded public affairs bodies that just want more delay and more confusion? I think on the, out of the coal, and we're not engaged in the coal sector. What I wouldn't waste any time doing is is battling President Trump. Hmm. I, you know, uh, first, he doesn't care what the truth or facts are. Second, other things he does infuriate the voters more than his backpedaling on coal. And I have a feeling there are a fair number of people in the reasonably interested and informed chattering class that say, well, you know, he can do whatever he wants to. There are going to be no new coal plants. Yeah, but that's not enough. Yeah. Here is the damage that is continuing or increasing. Or the solutions that are being delayed. Yeah. And it may be to target certain states and go after state action, both destructive of coal and constructive of the social network that needs to be provided as coal shuts down. You know, there are counties where the, the, the nuclear power plant provides 60, 70, 80% of the county's budget through its taxes. Hmm. You close the plant and the sheriff starts laying off deputies and the rural fire department shuts down. The, the, the problem is if you try to s- provide that social net, most states are, you know, desperately financially strapped already. Underfunded. Yeah, and particularly the ones where there are the most coal mines and coal-burning utility plants. You know, John, interestingly, when, you know, to to go back to your, your, you know, one phrase of coal is dead, coal is dead from a certain perspective in the United States, but it is certainly not dead in Asia. And what I would hope for is, and and would love to hear your opinion, whether in those states, in the United States, whether in those states that are still coal states, if that is not the opportunity to show how these plants and these mines can be brought to a fair and just close. 
But we have to remember that if you close a coal mine, you don't say on Friday it's closed and then Monday nothing nothing occurs anymore. There is a lot of work that is necessary in order to responsibly and legally, and from a regulation point of view, close a coal mine. The same thing for a coal plant. So it's not as though jobs go from 50,000 to zero overnight. There is work to be done. Um, The piece that is necessary for that is an industry-wide, because I do think it has to be industry-wide, I'm not sure that it can be company by company, but what we're still missing is the clear determination to say, right, thus far and no farther. And that is the piece that we're not seeing. Well, and I I think you're absolutely right, and whether or not existing coalitions of coal companies, utility companies, who have, as you know, enormously different interests by region and impacts, whether they can come together or whether you have to create a whole new working group of a number of major coal companies, major utilities, etc. I'm not sure. I mean, but, but but hold on, John. They did come together in 2008, right? There, you you had this. What was it called? The Association of Clean Coal Energy Companies, uh, and so they did that, come but, together but, at that time. Well, but again, that was a group of individual companies, certain coal companies, certain utilities, certain railroads. It was not the American Railroad Association, the Edison Electric Institute. You know, that, was, that was also just slow progress. It wasn't to find solutions. Yeah. Um, I think their mindset would be very different now. They know they've got to find solutions, and they want to be part of it. Whether or not you could find the leadership and get the commitment, I have no idea. But, mm. uh, you know, I mean, 41% of U.S. coal production is in Wyoming. It is... 41%. The, wow. Yeah. It is the smallest... Uh, State in America, in population smaller even than Alaska, the Wyoming State Senate is 27 Republicans and three Democrats. They don't even have enough Democrats to serve on every committee. A petition is being circulated because, in part, the state needs the money already to increase the tax on wind production Mm -hmm. in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And, of course... Why not, since I assume most or all of the electricity wind produces in Wyoming goes to other states, so why not tax those consumers? I am told that it is not, as you might have expected, a tax being championed by the coal industry, but rather by a state senator who simply doesn't like out-of-staters with their wind towers and who, who has enlisted the support of one of the teacher organizations promising him he'll earmark the tax for increased teacher salaries. That's not an opponent I would have guessed. Hmm. I mean, when when we got called about it, they said Wyoming. I said, coal industry has to be, you know, but apparently not. So what's the help that they're requesting? How do we avoid a tax increase on wind that the, the, the result is it makes wind less competitive than, oh, say, fossil fuels, coal, hmm. gas, oil, right. whatever. Right. I would think there is an excellent chance, given Wyoming, of defeating any tax. But <laughs> don't, don't know that. Haven't taken a poll. Uh, but it's a uh, bringing these groups together. I mean, uh, there's a uh, there was a bill in the California legislature that recently uh, failed to advance and may, may still rise like Phoenix 
around pump storage desperately needed if California is going to meet its renewable goals, but questions have been raised about what danger it might pose to aquifers. Not an unmerited concern in a state like California. How do we work through all that? How do we keep the lights on, enable people who can barely pay their bills now to still be able to pay them, not add to our jobless, homeless population, uh, you know, particularly in, in a state like West Virginia where if these guys, and I think it's mostly guys, not to be uh, gender insensitive, if these guys aren't mining coal, I don't know what they do in West Virginia. But I think that, so I totally get what you're saying, John. And, and I've been to West Virginia, actually, to, to visit the coal mining communities and see what happen, is happening there. And it, it, it genuinely is heartbreaking when you see communities where 50, 60% of children are being raised by someone other than their parents because of the opioid crisis, which is compounded on top oh. of job losses. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. But I think somehow we have to, you know, we need a good environmental policy that protects the population from changing weather and enables a stable society going forward. And we need a strong social policy to address those people who may be harmed in the transition. And, you know, if we, if we, but in order to do either of those, we need to get ourselves out of the period of time in which the obfuscation of facts is preventing progress on either. And I think we're there in many places around the world, but I think we're still lagging in the US. And I know that the coke industries are, again, looking to invest money in trying to slow down legislation, etc. So, you know, I, in, in many ways, our success rises and falls in our ability to win that battle in the coming five years. I, I took it as a sign from, a troubling sign from the Lord. We were doing focus groups uh, on behalf of the renewables industry in Kansas. And we'd done some in uh, suburban Kansas City, Wyandotte, Johnson counties. And then we went to Wichita to do focus groups to get a feel for Western Kansas. And the best focus group facility in Wichita is on the campus of Wichita State University. And as I walked in, I looked up and in gold letters above the building, it said, the Charles R. Koch Hall. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I thought, How is the focus uh, <laughs> thank you, Lord. I understand uh -oh. the fight, the fight we've got now. I, yeah, I, I mean, there are always going to be obfuscators, uh, you know, whether it's the flat earthers or the Holocaust deniers. Yeah. I think they are on increasingly untenable and foolish looking grounds. Yeah. When we got into a not unrelated fight, oh my God over 30 years ago, closer to 40, on acid rain, the utility industry was saying there is no such thing as acid rain. If there is, it doesn't, we don't cause it, and if we do, it doesn't do any damage. I think that was the sequence of argument. <laughs> and, of course, we took a national poll and came back and said the only credible position is acid rain is a serious problem that does damage. We may be a contributing factor, what we're going to be is a force to figure out how to stop it, hmm. you know, and come up with some solution that is financially sustainable by the industry over time. That certainly is subject to attack for having delayed a solution. Uh, I would argue it at least advanced a solution that otherwise would have been delayed even more. But it would appear there's no place in American politics for moderate centrists these days. Is there any chance to get the two extremes, Trump aside, 
to get the, the two extreme views to say, there's one thing we can agree on. We've got to figure out how to make this socially, economically viable. We did a campaign in Michigan years ago in which we actually got the president of the AFL-CIO and the president of the Chamber of Commerce to do a joint commercial. One of them saying, well, Tom, you and I sure don't agree on much. No, John, we don't. But by God, we can agree on this. This is bad for business and labor and Michigan. Can we find some pairing of, of divergent views that, because uh, as I say, America has accepted that climate change is real, is damaging, and is damaging my community now. Uh, and we've got to do something about it. Well, from your lips to the American gods' uh, ears, uh, may that be the tone that we find in the uh, in the campaign toward the election in 2020. However, John, my wish is that the purpose of that conversation, which is a mid-center or a bipartisan conversation, is not just on finalizing the finish and the closure of coal, but on positively and accelerating fashion, addressing climate change. And I think that is where the United States really needs to come together to realize this is no longer a partisan thing. This is now a humanity emergency. And forget my party, this has got to be something that all citizens come around. Interestingly enough, very similar to what is happening in the UK. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm the father of two college-age children, uh, I'm far more worried about the effects on them, and I'm worried that the question they're going to be asking is, okay, uh, America went after coal. Why didn't they go after the rest of the bad actors? In now, time. You can only, right. Yeah, you can only pick so many fights. By the way, I think the one opportunity the anti-coal forces might have, even with Trump, is to get him to pick a fight with China over their exports to Africa. Now, his relations with the Chinese are, to borrow Churchill, a riddle wrapped in an enigma in a mystery. But uh, that's the kind of thing that would appeal to him. I mean, he obviously loves to beat up on people. And uh, it probably would also appeal to him because in his devious little mind, and of which there is no smaller, uh, <laughs> the uh, he would think, gee, if I'm going to attack China for exporting to Africa— Wink, wink, nod, nod to the American coal industry. If they quit, this is your new market. You know, don't know, but that, as both of you know, there is no more xenophobic, self-centric country in the world, I don't think. I haven't been to many of them than America. Boy, could they get exercised about China's abuse of Africa, if they knew about it. Hmm. Well, let's see. Let's see if we can get him on to into that little program. John Ashford, thank you very, very much for coming on to Outrage and Optimism. Thank you for allowing us a little peek into your world. Uh, we would actually love to, uh, along the way, as the election campaign in the United States heats up, uh, we would love to uh, have you back and have you give us glimpses into your reading of the um, political discourse on climate change and on other things in the United States. But for the time being... Well, no, no one could have been more wrong about the last presidential election than I am. My only comfort is <laughs> I was in good company with my colleagues, Charlie Cook and Larry Sabato. 
we're going to try to do better this time. All right. We'll hold you to it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. So thanks for listening to this episode of Outrage and Optimism and this conversation with John Ashford. We're still on holiday next week, but fortunately, Christiana ran into Tom Friedman on her holiday. So we'll bring you that conversation next week. And two weeks from now, we'll be back together and back to usual. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. Hope you're having a great August and getting some time to be with your families or whatever you want to do. We'll see you next week. So Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. It is produced by Clay Carnell. The team includes Pete Cotton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivett-Karnak, Marina Mancilla, Alejandra vargas Morera, Callum Greve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please do subscribe. We'll see you next week.